Good morning, world. Welcome to another episode of the Piper's Dojo Audio Experience. Uh, Today, I sat down with Gordy Peters, who is a famous judge, teacher, and pipe major here from the um, northeast of the United States. And Gordy has been around a really long time. And unlike previous guests, Gordy actually prepared a whole bunch of thoughts that he wanted to cover during the um, discussion today. So that actually lent itself to be a really exciting episode um, going into all sorts of great things about teaching. And I didn't know Gordy that well warming up, or warming up, growing up, um, because he was pipe major of one of the rival bands that we were always struggling really hard to try to compete against. But I've gotten to know him a lot better in the past couple of years, and uh, we really do see things eye to eye. So I hope that you'll enjoy this. Um, this discussion, just like all the other ones, is brought to you by what we're doing here at Dojo University. So please consider a membership. Head over to dojouniversity.com today to check out what we're all about. And um, I hope that you enjoy this interview. We'll see you again soon. But in the meantime, buckle in, sit back, relax, and enjoy this long-form discussion with Pipe Major Gordy Peters. So, hey, Gordy. I'm going to do, like, I'll do a little brief introduction of you before this so people will know a little bit about you. A little bit, not a lot. But you've been playing for a long time around the scene, and unlike some of my previous guests, you have actually prepared some thoughts. Yes. Which is amazing. Yeah. So uh, fire away. How far we've come. How far we've come. Well, um, it is amazing as I look back over these decades, many, many things that we now take for granted, just how far technology and playing the bagpipes and the bagpipes themselves have come. So one of the things that has happened over time, um, ultra-precise machining. So I look at uh, bagpipe makers now churning out their, their clones. The bagpipes are just so well-made yeah. today. And uh, so that has led to, well, back when I started, bands were playing with mismatched chanters imagine that yeah and different reeds and you know it was kind of a crazy catch-all thing so now we have these very precisely made chanters and uh it's just amazing the sound that's being achieved along with reeds consistency of of reeds yeah that i think that's a big thing isn't it i mean uh, i i have very i haven't been doing it for 52 years but like, I remember the first time my dad went to get reeds, it was from a fairly local guy in the Syracuse area. I don't think he, he, I mean, I don't know who it was, but he had like this weird spread of reeds that were all very clearly handmade. And it was like very difficult to find a good one. Now it's like you order 16 and, you know, they'll all be playable, which is weird. Right? Yeah. Because they didn't all used no, to be playable. No, yeah. And then they'll all be playable and probably you could make twelve out of a, you could make twelve out of the sixteen oh sound pretty good. Like it might not be perfect. Like there's still a bunch of reads we cast aside, but that I think that's huge and people don't people nowadays don't understand what it used to be like. I remember some years back getting a couple dozen reads from an unnamed 
maker in Scotland and sending them back and getting uh, like an earful, but they were just, they were awful. Yeah. They were so inconsistent, awful. You know, that you're spending, at that time, it was still a good piece of change. Now, reeds are very expensive, but instead of buying um, a lot of reeds, hoping to get, you know, like one or two, like really good ones, the the level of consistency is there. It's I know. Much better. So, um, Channer reeds have gotten better, and one of the, the um, key developments in technology, I think, is the synthetic drone reed. Now, purists are still playing cane, sheepskin bags. For people who are more, I'll say, uh, more occasional, like recreational pipers, being able to pick up your pipes and have them go. When I was a kid, it was no. always always a struggle getting your cane reeds to go. And a lot of it had to do with the um, moisture control and instability something that we've made huge strides in over the years Mm -hmm. when i take a look at um like reed storage um being able to ensure that reeds have sufficient moisture in them haven't dried out you know will go huge well that's that's fairly that's pretty recent like uh the the cigar humidor channer cap things um, which, but that's been pretty awesome. We've been experimenting with that, and that's pretty awesome. So some years back, I had actually um, gone to a pipe shop and gotten it's a little vial that you put water in, mm-hmm. and I was controlling how much moisture was coming out of the of the vial in uh, you know a, a reed storage box by like taping the holes on the thing. It was kind of crude, but it worked. And now. Um, uh, the technology is has just gone forward tremendously. Now you but, just get the digital, the digital. It, let, it lets you know like what humidity it reads at. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's way cool. And and, and like, uh, I think it's important to understand. It's kind of like, uh, it's it's kind of like with your iPhone, a supercomputer in your pocket all the time. It's like people take for granted that you used you used to have to like know how to uh, calculate the change from something that was $2.57. Like you used to be expected to know 43 cents was gonna come back. Um, and But that's not really the case anymore. Everything's like just computerized and automatic and you don't even think about it. Uh, but bagpipes did not used to be automatic. Uh, clearly. And uh, talking about synthetic drone reads, Mark Wygent was uh a real innovator came out. I still with, have my Wygents. I still got my Wygents. So for some time after Wygent came out with his reeds, then were Easy Drones and, you know, I, I, it was just easy another drone is Easy Drone is basically a perfected Wygent. That's basically. Yes. Like the, the design is, like, do you think it, I mean, uh, I don't necessarily mean it negatively, but was it kind of copied by Easy Drone? And then they took it to mass market, or what's the scoop there? I don't, I'm not sure I can answer that. The attorneys may be listening, but, right? Yeah, um, but I, um, I know Mark really took it on the chin after everybody jumped on, um, you know, the whole synthetic reed thing. Well, <clears throat> for some time, I was buying a set of everything that came out to test them. Right. I have a very large reed museum, um, and the, the innovation is still occurring. Okay, and it's to me this is a a huge benefit to the the wider population of pipers out yeah. there. 
for sure. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there's st- the conundrum still exists, right? Like that none of the synthetic materials so far are like actually designed to handle moisture, right? So far. There's a couple interesting things happening like the absorbent easy drone and whatever, but but like uh, that's always going to be a problem. But it's like you said, right? For the For the beginner or the hobbyist to pick up your pipes and for them to work is more valuable than than figuring out what needs to happen once they start to get wet, right? Like that's something you can worry about in 35 minutes. So in the same way, um, the development of technology as relates to pipe bags, huge. Mm -hmm. So I remember days gone by of spending an inordinate amount of time seasoning, 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 uh, cowhide bags, they dry out. Um, so between, you know, the pure synthetic bags, when the Canmore Gore-Tex bags came out, um, a lot of people jumped on them because they didn't have to season anymore. Now there's some, in my opinion, some deficiencies of the, the Kenmore bag because they just don't have that solid pillow feel. Yeah. So they they make certain things like starts and stops really hard to execute, but again for the occasional That's right. piper, you know there's a place in the world for those kinds of bags. So there's a lot of uh, wide range of different types of um, moisture control strategies there regarding bags, water traps, um, you know things to put in bags, and it has to do with uh, where you live. You know, the, the problems we have where we live here in the Northeast is we have, like right now, very, very dry um, houses. Things dry out fast. Yeah. Summertime, we have high humidity, high temperatures. Other places may be more, much more consistent. Once, so, the, once the air freezes, the, all the humidity goes away. So if you're like, because I lived in the Pacific Northwest for a while and like, you know, in the wintertime, it's raining the whole time, AKA like really high humidity all the time. So a lot of the problems we have here are, they don't have. And in Glasgow right now, probably I'm speculating. It's like high 80% humidity this time of year. And so, yeah, you really do need to season your bag constantly here in the winter because, or at least it's tempting to do that because it just dries out. You, you season it one day and within two days, like all of the moisture from the seasoning is gone. So the, uh, I guess the, the answer to all this is that you have to find out what works where you live. Mm-hmm. There's no like uh, single solution out there, but there's a lot of different possibilities you know, yeah, much, much wider range of possibilities today than ever before. Um, so moisture control stability to me is key to achieving a terrific bagpipe sound. Mm-hmm. Change is bad. Change is really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, another aspect of things that we take for granted these days is the bagpipe tuner. So the Gulf Pipe Band, I think it's about forty years ago. People they thought they started, were crazy. They were crazy. They yeah. started using, you know, this cork tuner thing that was by today's standards, it was like a bread box. You know, it was huge. Now, were they the first ones, or were they just the first North American ones? You know, I think they were. Uh, yeah, good question. I don't know. 
I, but I could imagine they might have been the first ones. And I could imagine in Scotland, like if for bands that were used to just tuning it one way, there would be a lot of like social pressure to just keep doing it that way. There was. Yeah. So I could see how like. There's a lot of rejection to this new technology stuff. Yeah, for sure. But they they achieved great results. And so what's happened over the years, tuners have gotten smaller, more accurate. We have these clip-on mics. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I look at the precision of tuners today, it's amazing. It, the tuners are so precise that it's more precise than people. Most people can blow that steadily to really, you know, take advantage, leverage the that's technology. Right. I mean, that's the irony of it, and it's like, and and that's the downside of it, right? Is like yeah. the, the better these tuners get, like there's probably more technology in a Peterson tuner than uh, was in the capsule that took people to the moon. You know, <laughs> there probably there probably, probably really is. There probably like, is. It's a supercomputer, and so you get the Peterson. And uh, you assume that this gadget's going to get you in tune, and it, like people, just naturally focus less and less and less on fundamentals. And if you can't play your bagpipe steadily, it doesn't matter what you're doing; you're not going to be able to like stay in tune very long. Like that's the downside, but certainly the upside is the technology is. So the uh, the smartphone, you know tuners on smartphone metronomes on smartphone um the uh development of these digital metronomes used to be the old wind up tick tock yeah uneven tempo yeah, you know yeah, metro- yeah. metronomes kind of drive you nuts when they go i take that for granted yeah i've never had a non-digital one so um and then we have these devices now that are combination tuner and metronome. Terrific stuff. Mm-hmm. Using the um, tuners as um, uh, pressure feedback devices, mm-hmm. right? So for people to be able to keep the green light lit or keep the needle, you know, in the center, um, certainly the, the age-old um, spirit level manometer, the water uh, filled manometer tube, yeah. is still has a, a a big place in terms of a feedback device. Ultimately, what you're trying to do is to tune your ear. Your ear is uh, is really like the pressure sensor, mm-hmm. the pitch sensor, and your elbow is the regulator. Yeah, a lot exactly. of people think about blowing. But to me, it's it's really it's all about the elbow and and keeping the bag um, pressurized. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, and again, it's like the technology is amazing, but it can if you're not careful, it can cause you or allow you to take your eye off the ball. You know, like people we use the manometers a lot with the dojo stuff, but the problem with the manometer is people just get fixated and they stare at the manometer. And, and then they're not listening. And That's it's, right. it's like what you said. It's like it's really, in the end of the day, the manometer is a tool to help us learn to listen and feel like what it should feel like. So in the same way, what's, uh, what's the use of a metronome? It's to really fine-tune the uh, Your, atomic clock within right. us. Your to, sense of timing. Right. That's right, yeah. Right. Um, recordings. So the, uh, let's see, the cassette tape came in, those little cassette recorders. Yeah. It was like, I want to say it was back in like the mid-60s, right? 
before then, uh, nothing. Nothing. Right. Basically. So we went from cassette to, um, you know, we um, digital recording has been around now for a while, MP3s, right? But CDs, DVDs, for people to be able to see people playing instructional videos, right? The, the wider availability of recordings for people to use as models for, I would say, mimicry. Yeah. Huge. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it's caused, it's wreaked so much havoc on the bagpipe world because, I mean, if you think about it, let's say, uh, let's say bagpipe competitions have been going on now for over 200 years. So like digital recording has been around for like only a small fraction of that time. And yeah, people are like freaked out about it and it's really changed things. And like, to me, things that seem totally absurd, like you, you're not really supposed to record the Northern meeting, you know, like to me, that seems absurd. But as far as the Northern meeting is concerned, well, they'd never recorded it for the first 185 years or what I'm, I don't know the exact numbers, but, uh, yeah. What do you do with that? It certainly changed the landscape of piping fast. So with the good, you got to be, um, vigilant to ensure that, you don't you you can discern between the good and the bad yeah because in the world of uh youtube videos there are some not so good things out there oh my god yeah it was interesting like because i came up i was i you know came up in the 90s so yeah i had all the cassettes but you didn't make it on a cassette that people purchased unless you were one of the world's best in the 90s and then now like you know now i can uh you know Anybody can make a, a recording and sell it on iTunes now. That's right. So um, I'm dating myself in the world of uh, when I was a kid, it was LPs, 33 and a third LPs. Yeah, we did the And Glasgow. there was like uh, maybe every couple of years there was a recording that came out, right? Yeah. Few and far between. It cost a lot to, to put out a recording yeah. at that time. And, uh, Invergordon Distillery... Glasgow Police. Yep. Shots and Dykehead. Shots and Dykehead, yep. yeah. Yep. So, um, along with this digital world that we live in, there's Skype. And that's huge, 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 huge development for teaching, as you well know, for people who live in hinterlands to be able to get instruction. So, when I started out... Um, an older brother, Jim. I've heard he's like a great piper. He's a really good piper. Um, so he was my first teacher, and he was mistaught initially in terms of how to finger the scale. He went up to the Gaelic College, um, Nova Scotia, which at the time was the only piping school in North America. Yeah. And he had instruction from... Uh, Seamus McNeil and Tommy Pearson from the College of Piping. Yeah. He had I mean, to, those guys, if you look closely, those two guys played such a huge role in like American piping. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, so, so yeah. Jim had to um, unlearn and relearn. Learning on its own is hard enough, but he had to unlearn and relearn. Yeah. Taught me. And then um, Don Lindsay's dad, Jimmy start up the Invermark school um, east of here. And that's what I did summers. 
But otherwise, I'd have to go down to New Jersey for lessons because there was nobody around here. So getting back to this world of Skype that we live in, oh my goodness, what a huge uh, opportunity for people to get in, uh, really good instruction. And uh, part of that uh, what I, um, point is that we've had good instruction over the years. We have good teachers now, a lot of good teachers. And, and that makes uh, for better and better pipers because good instruction is, is available locally and through Skype. Um, Definitely a huge like technological advancement, right? So um, at, at some point, I'm going to segue into some of the, my pet themes about things I've learned about teaching and playing well and so on. Yes. But uh, going along with what we're talking about, the um, availability of recordings and Skype, I am a huge fan of or supporter of the idea of mimicry that you have to immerse yourself in the music now when i learned um at the Invermark school there wasn't a lot of what i would call instruction it was more um my main teacher at the time was uh john mcfadgen and it was play it like this and it just got hammered into you. Play it like this. Play yeah, it like this. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of discussion about, you know, um, make your doubling sound like this and timing relative to the beat. It was just play it like this. Play it like this. Yeah. So the, the master to apprentice style of learning. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, another thing that I uh, appreciated the development of or the uh, advancements in being able to score music oh like uh music notation yeah music notation so uh many of the oh boy you probably have a collection too i think my collection of bagpipe books is close to 200 now yeah you i'm sure you have more than me but i have a lot so um the early books you could tell they were really scrimping on um printing costs yeah. because you might have a, a line of staff music where there would be five or six bars and yes. or measures and then another line there was like four and it was like all over the place no alignment of of bar lines so um we've gone from uh at the time was handwritten scores and photocopies now we have um personal computers running um music notation software Mm -hmm. being able to send pdfs to people they can print them out it's just been it's crazy right it's huge so um it's brought the cost of publishing way down um people being able to um be be able to score themselves or have somebody do it uh inexpensively as opposed to actually have them typeset which is what they used to do. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So all in all, there's a, a lot of uh, tons of progress that we've made in, I'll say, technology. That again, we've kind of taken for granted. Uh, maybe a lot of people taken for granted, but uh, it's. Uh, I just wanted to give some notice to what has occurred over time, so that there's that appreciation of the world we live in. Yeah, it's- pretty. Pretty wonderful. So um, I want to move on to reflections on T 
teaching and learning. Yeah. So give us a bit of background. I mean, maybe it's already in there, but like uh, on on what kind of stuff you've done, because it's pretty prolific as far as teaching and... Yeah. So, um, you know, over the years as a player, as a teacher, as a band leader, as a judge... You had you developed this body of knowledge, mm-hmm. and uh, it comes from your teachers, you know, workshops. It comes from people you've taught. It comes from listening to different types of music, not just bagpipe music. There's a lot to be learned from studying other types of music, um, so that you're really well-rounded as a musician. Um, so the, uh, I guess the, to me, the most uh, fundamental and important thing for someone who's uh, learning to become a, a, uh, uh, an expert player is to have a non-judgmental focus. The, the worst thing, I guess the epitome of, of horror is performance anxiety because the inner voice speaking to you with doubt about this and that etc so um probably the the um the most influential uh thing that uh i ran into some time ago with respect to non-judgmental focus was the inner game of music by Timothy Galway. I think uh, the, I first had read Inner Game of Tennis, and then he came out with Inner Game of Music. Yeah. But it really, it, it, it opened my eyes tremendously about how important it was to have this simple awareness, non-judgmental, right? Objective awareness. So the, the idea of like when you're um, practicing to listen, to observe what's happening, compare what you were doing relative to your model of yeah. what it should sound like and there's really like this feedback loop you try it again you try it again you try it again but non-judgmental that's right and i think comparing it to something outside of yourself is uh objectively i think is one of the key things it's like so for me so for me i you know i'll always be observing what i'm doing relative to like i don't know uh, how I pictured Jack Lee or somebody I, you know, really love as a player. Like, what would it sound like if they were playing this right now? And how is what I'm doing uh, the same and different? You know, it's like, oh, my drones are clearly not the same as, you know, if if I were picturing Jack Lee doing it. And and you're right. And I think what you mean by non-judgmental focus is that you're not making a value judgment on yourself. Exactly. As, as a result, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, like oh, I'm, cr- oh, this is crap. No one's going to like this, or I'm never going to win the competition sounding like this. Whereas it needs to be more about, like, okay, what are the objective, th- and, you know, that's, I'm obsessed with that kind of thing, right? It's like, what are the objective elements that are good versus the objective elements that could use improvement? And then, you know, prioritize yeah so the the awareness side of things is you really need to know what it is you're trying to achieve yes and i think so many people miss that people miss that point it's like 
you know, uh, like I was judging on Saturday at the, th- at the thing. And, you know, it was great. But, you know, a lot of people like walk into the room, strike up their pipes and play their tune and then stop and then walk off. But it's like that, that clearly demonstrates like you're not really aware of what solo competition is because there are like some essential things you can do to, um, you know, that, that like experienced soloists will do, for example, fire up, do some tuning phrases, maybe play a simple air or something, if not to settle the pipes and get them in better tune, but to settle your nerves and get into it before you start. And there's that whole process that's really important. And if you knew what you were trying to do, you would be aware of that and you would be integrating that. So in that regard, for um, people who are newer to the scene, to observe others who are experienced. Yeah. You know, learn by sort of modeling yourself after, you know, others. So you mentioned about, you know, thinking, how would Jack Lee play this? Yeah. How would Jack Lee tune up? That's right. That's exactly right. I, I remember because I spent time, Jack was never like officially my teacher. Uh, like, you know what I mean? I mean, except for maybe at piping schools. But, you know, I actually lived with Jack for a couple of summers when I started playing with SFU. And I remember, but he would teach you things, obviously. Because, like, you know, he'd be hanging around and I'd be doing solos. And he would just, I remember one of the biggest things was he would just rip into me about how I was setting up before I started playing. You know, like, you basically, bottom line is you, the tune-up process and the presentation of yourself as you're getting ready is like super important and it should be ultra musical and you need to convey like the correct image. And at the time I was like, not, not being, I mean, I didn't really think it should be that important. So I think there was a little bit of like, I don't know what you would call it besides stupidity. I don't know what you would call it, but like, I totally get it now and he's completely correct. And and you're exactly right. Like how would Jack Lee, approach or Callum Beaumont or, you know, some of these like titans of presentation, you know, how would they, how would they tune themselves up? And like, what am I doing? That's the same. Like I can get my pipes, let's say like I can get the quality of my instrument more or less to that level, but there's more to it than that. And objectively, like what are the purpose of those things? So, uh, you know, we have some terrific, opportunities for people to observe the George Sheriff, the nickel Brown competition. And it's sad that more, uh, players don't take advantage of really soaking up those moments of uh, excellence. So they, those competitions, you know, they're the best amateur performers in uh, North America. And there's tons of other opportunities as well, but you know, we people just typically do their own thing. I think we go down. I, I think that could take us down like a huge like rabbit hole of why that is. Yeah. I think it has. I think most people can't decide what they're passionate about in our culture. You know, uh, not just here. I think it's. I think it's a worldwide or a first worldwide thing. Anyway, like people can't decide like, oh. I'm really passionate about bagpipes. I want to do whatever I can to learn more and get better and soak things in. I think I feel like that's different now, though. Like when I was a kid, that's what we did. I mean, we went to the games. We played around the games. We went to these 
you know, when, whenever we went to the games, it's like, oh, there's a professional event like three miles down the road on the Friday before the games. We're definitely going to that right. until bedtime, right? you know, or whatever. And then we, you know, and we would definitely be soaking that in. And, uh, at that time, John Bottomley was winning everything. Maybe not. Duncan Bell was hot then. I remember. Anyway, I digress. You were probably judging half of those. Uh, yeah, half of them. Maybe yeah. maybe 60%. Yeah. Um, so another key thing that I I uh, have seen uh, the light on is the need for people to play with hands that are relaxed, relaxed, relaxed. Mm-hmm. So this problem of the vice grips on the channer is uh, a huge detriment to being able to execute cleanly, clearly, consistently. Um, tension, excess, excessive effort will kill execution. Yeah. So um, I think it was Ed Nye put me on to the use of uh, uh, stretching exercises for your fingers. So there's nothing worse than having driven in a car for some period of time and clenching the steering wheel and then try to play forget about it right got to relax the fingers um one of the things that i do with uh beginning students is we go through the finger the pencil drop drill basically take an old-fashioned um pencil in each hand between uh, resting it between the uh the thumb and your four fingers and just see how lightly you need to hold that pencil before it drops out and try to instill in your sense of um it's almost like muscle memory yeah of how light you can um hold the channer to be able to execute clearly like mm-hmm. if you're pushing your fingers down how can you raise them it's That's like right. mixed signals for your and it, it's an adjustment you can make as well like it's so much easier to go slightly more tense from relaxed than it is to go from slightly more relaxed from tense like it's not it's not equal like it's much easier if you need a little more grip let's say you know once you reach a certain stage of development it's a lot easier to say just use a little bit a tiny bit more grip that's easy if they're pre if they're previously relaxed right but if they're super tense and then three or three years down the road you want to teach them to be more relaxed it's just not going to happen so having that uh sense of how relaxed your fingers can be it's kind of natural if you're playing uh tunes that require a lot of um peppy execution for your fingers to begin to tense up so the the magic words of let go being able to see what's going on and just on the fly relax your fingers have you heard about the taping the high a trick yeah because like that i mean that sounds weird certainly if you have tune with a tune with lots of high a's in it but like uh, the lead my my myth in my head is that comes from mike cusack something that he did but he i'm sure he got the idea from someone else but if you just tape over the high a you don't need your thumbs and then a great exercise is to play with no thumbs that no thumbs especially the bottom hand now once upon a time one of my students broke a synthetic channer. He was so strong, <laughs> snapped it, <laughs> snapped it because of that, you know, the, the, yeah. the between. The D-throw just broke the channer. Just broke the channer. That was 
supreme moment of wow. Yeah. Um, so if you're a real piper, you've broken a, a Blackwood chanter at some point in your career too. If you're, have you ever? You've done it. Yeah. I've done it on more than one occasion. I remember one time we were shooting a Dojo U promo thing video with uh, Matt MacArthur, who's a really good piping friend. I'm sure you've judged him a few times. But we were, it was, it was like 20 below zero, but like that was the day we had to like shoot shots. So we were out there and just, he just on a whim, he didn't even twist it that hard, but he just grabbed it from the bottom without thinking just for a split second. And it was so cold. The chanter just went and just, there you go. Yeah. Always, always, always remove the chanter by having your hand at the top of the chanter. I think they call it the bowl, you know, yeah, at the bowl. Yeah. Oh. Cause if not, you're going to regret it. It's like, Oh, it doesn't matter. Like it's a, it's a polypinko chanter. Well, someday it won't be. And you're just going to forget for that split second. But the good news is once you break one, you'll be a real piper. Yeah. Once you break your you, black one, you will always from that point on take great care yeah. in removing that chanter. So, you know, another thing, Andrew, about, um, relaxed hands and fingers is, uh, I, I look at, Raising my fingers and lowering my fingers is, is really almost like a simple lever, up and down, up mm-hmm. and down. And I see all too often people that try to move their fingers in like a snappy fashion, playing yeah. grace notes by snapping them. And uh, that promotes tension. And typically, you know, people that play that way are going to execute early. Their execution is going to be early. Interesting. So um, I think it's really critical to just simply lift and lower with minimal effort, minimal effort, up and down. So if at some point, um, you know, you raise your finger off the chanter, by raising your finger even higher doesn't produce a clearer sound. It's the same sound. Right. So it's a real impediment for people who over-execute to then be able to play things at speed, and especially um, tunes that require, you know, faster tempos, stress bays, and so on. So, I I look at you know being very economical of of uh, you know finger movement. Mm-hmm. Try to get away with moving your fingers the least amount. Yeah, well, there's a few exceptions, but generally speaking, the best players have low finger height. As they're executing. Yeah. Now, I know one of the things that I, I got from Bob Worrell was the idea of sometimes you need to elevate your fingers to, to make, ensure that you're playing short notes long enough and not right. you know, super clipping them. Or that you're not going to miss a grace note. Like, right. like once you get to a certain point, uh, like ensuring you elevate them enough is a key. Cam Drummond, uh, it comes to mind that way. Like he... he he is so great about never missing anything, but you could tell like he's actually, uh, maybe not, but I mean, in my head, I'm thinking he's thinking that, uh, he needs to get enough finger height on the grace notes just to make sure you never miss anything. Yes. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, about making sure that you have clear execution Yeah. and pinched grace notes, grace notes are too short. You know, that, that can be a problem if you're, if you're barely raising the finger, you know, it's easy mm-hmm. to, to make it ultra short if uh, yeah. you know, the finger doesn't come up. So um, another thing about finger movement is um, some people look at 
the diagrams that you'll find here and there about how do you form different notes of the chanter and they had, there's a profile of chanter and it shows you know these yeah. these uh, solid yep. uh, circles for which holes are covered and then you know which are not well people some people think about um, transitioning from one note to another as being something that's binary on off yes. and the way I teach I encourage people when they're um, making note transitions to actually think about teeter-tottering. There's a microsecond when a bunch of fingers are up in the air at the same time. Yeah. But you cannot go from up and down like instantaneously. So that, that to me is a, is a critical thing in people learning to just know how to be able to transition from one note to the to another without extra sounds, whether it's crossing noises or, you know, the rolling kind of a sound that you may get yeah. extra sounds. Um, and then when uh, we play grace notes, I, I use the analogy of a grace note being like a bridge from one side of a stream to the other. A grace note gets started on one note and finishes to the other note. And in between, there is the note change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not binary, on, off. Right. So it's uh, just The grace note happens on top of the note change. Yes, happens on top of the note change. As Uh, opposed to like, as opposed to like, okay, we're going from E to F with a G grace note. So now we want to lift this finger and then, or no, we want to lift both of these fingers. I, I don't even think this way, but we lift both of these fingers and then we put this one back down. Well, like, yeah, technically that's what happens, but the way to think about it, for me, it makes more sense that the two there's two things happening at the same time. Right. The grace note and the note change. That's right. So, you know, uh, in this world of bagpipe technique, it's a series of layers. The foundation is being able to play cleanly from one note to another. And then once you can do that, then there's the grace note thing we're just talking about. Yeah. Got to be able to play clear clean grace notes before you can play these uh, multi-pulse embellishments, doublings, etc. So it's something like there's some very common faults like F to double E where people will play a short E before the G grace note. Very common, right? What's the problem? It's not the doubling. It's that pivoting from F to E with the G grace note is off. Yes. So in order to fix that problem, you got to take it down a layer to that simple change of notes with a grace note. Um, so by the way, I, I'm never going to be a professional podcaster, Gordy, because I can't sit still. Okay. You know what I mean. Are you going to dance around here for me? No, no, no. Okay. I'm just trying to. I don't know. On all of our, you're going to hear me jiggling probably in the podcast and be like, ah. So Ter- um, terrible. I want to go on to one other, another um, thing that I I'm really big on, gotten bigger and bigger on this over time, and that is sing through your fingers. What does that mean? You have to get the song in your head. Yeah. And when you play, the song is in your head, and it comes out through your fingers. 
Yeah. Uh, it's so some, it's something that doesn't get taught because the the really good players are just doing this and assuming everybody else looks at it the same way. So I had a revelation with one of my students where when he was playing, he was seeing the music, the printed score. Like the dots. Yeah. Seeing the dots. So one of the things that I do routinely is I will give somebody recording of a tune. They come back the next lesson, and I give them the score if they can sing the tune properly for me. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, this is like being a folk musician. A lot of folk musicians don't read music, but they play superbly. And they're able to pick up music like you can't believe because they understand music. Yeah. Um, so the uh, the role of mimicry, you know, goes back to how I was taught was play it like this. Well, there's a certain element of that that is, I think, is absolutely essential. Yeah. So I remember um, probably the the most influential teacher I had in Peter Rock was Jimmy McIntosh. And I would, this was in the cassette days, all right, have a recording of Jimmy playing something, and I would listen to it over and over and over, sing it, play it while uh, he was singing it mm-hmm. or playing it, and just trying to mimic. Eventually, then you understand the world of Peabrock. It made sense to me what he was doing. Right. So Jimmy's big thing about you know scansion, about you know flow, et cetera. It really you you get it after a while. Mm-hmm. So uh, when it but comes to but you don't to, get it. But you're right in that you're never gonna get it. Looking at the score first, this, you know, and and what happens is like when I get a score and other good pipers that I can think of, when we get a score, it's it's a uh, it's simply just a nice map to help us internalize the song of it into our minds as quickly as possible. But people come to me all the time and they say, I just can't memorize no matter what I do. It's like uh, guaranteed it's because it's because something that I take for granted, they're not even close, which is like, you have to be able to sing it, you know, like throw, like the way to memorize is kind of throw away the music. It's repetition. Now I tell everybody, I learn most of my music on the steering wheel of my car. That's right. What the hell does that mean? Well, I have a recording. I think it's universally that, that, true. That I will just hear it over and over and over and just immerse myself in that and be able to then play it. And you can get the de- some of the details from the score later. Right. Absolutely. You know? So that to me, that because our music is so highly detailed with all the doodads, the embellishments, we need the score. It's essential. But if you realize the difference in going from, you know, like a 16th note to an eighth note to a dotted eighth to a quarter, those are big jumps of time. Yeah. And uh, I look at, you know, over the years, how do you depict a jig? Do you write it out the same way you do a a 6-8 march, you know? Or do you show uh, the... um, a, a, a three-note group as having no distinction between and time between the notes, because a lot of people take uh, playing to an extreme. Now, to me, uh, one of the worst things that I've encountered is trying to teach an engineer or a mathematician. <laughs> okay, because yeah. the staff music 
is, well, it says it's this long, right? Yeah. And they, they don't get it. So I go back to this whole idea of recordings, mimicry, the world we now live in, rich with recording technology, um, and you know the playback devices, everything from your smartphone to you know cars, yeah. whatever. Yeah, um, huge. But I, that's what I do. I mean, like I wait. I'm I'm in the fortunate position to be able to wait uh, for the Inverary like practice recordings to come out the next day, um, and then that goes onto my phone. I mean, barely. I mean, it's just on my Dropbox, right? So when I'm in the car, I just bring up my Dropbox. Got to use a little bit of my data plan, but I just press play and it goes through the Bluetooth. And like you said, I mean, I learned the tunes driving around throughout the day. Um, and and uh, I would say 90% of like 90% of the process of learning and memorizing, there's no actual playing through an instrument at all. It's right. just fingering on the steering wheel. If that, sometimes I'm just singing and, and bebopping to it. Right. You know? So if you can sing the tune, you know the tune. Yeah. Think about how many um, pieces of music that people have learned the lyrics to. They've never seen the music, yeah. right? Yeah. But they can sing the song. That's right. Well, bagpiping is, is like not, how many it, how many people have seen the music to Star Spangled Banner? I yeah. mean, let's uh, you know how many Americans the birthday song. Now that's a real yeah. simple one. Happy but, birthday! Know. But that's not a simple melody, right? Like that would be that would take a piping student like three weeks to even come close to memorizing, and it would it would have a bunch of crossing. So the in the it. memorization comes with repetition, hearing the song enough times that you just get to know it. Now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a rainbow man. I I like my highlighters. When I get a piece of staff music, I pick out the unique phrases so that I just know how the tune is constructed. Yeah. Makes it a lot easier to kind of. That's a roadmap. But what's important is your that's step four hundred and seven yes. for you. Yes. That's the thing yes. people don't understand. Yes. People are getting the highlighters out before they even have a like. They don't even know what the underlying rhythm of the like. They see two four march written on top of the page, but you know, like to me, that's you know that means you know one and two, and I'm already feeling the groove, like just kind of looking, just kind of knowing it's a two four march. But then, you know, let me hear it. Sometimes I use the music because I'm a very good sight reader, so I use the music, play the tune. Now I've heard the tune, so then I can start singing it. So you know, so it's a great tool that can be used. But yeah, it's all about singing. Uh, so in summary, sing through your fingers. It's really, you got to have the song going through your head. And there's one, if if there's one thing all great bagpipers have in common is that that's what they're doing. Yep. Absolutely. And, uh, there are no great pipers who don't sing first. There aren't any, they don't exist. Absolutely. So sing away everybody. Now, um, Music is what? It's a fusion of melody, harmony, rhythm. And our music is, uh, light music is highly rhythmic, Mm -hmm. tremendously um, rhythmic. And it's principally because of um, this intricate system of embellishments, unlike anything else I've encountered in the music world. Yes. Um, And why is that? Well, we have an instrument that it's only on, That's right. on or off, right? It's when we start, there's sound coming in from beginning to end. 
other instruments rests mm-hmm. okay so um we have to use these intricate embellishments to provide emphasis i love i love using the word tacit with bag even really good bagpipers like i sometimes throw it in there because most pipers don't know what that word means but most experienced musicians anywhere else know what tacit means which is not actually when you're not actually playing it's like the absence of playing but pipers we don't have that we don't have that we don't have ones and zeros we just have one we got one and uh, so we rely on this system of embellishments to give us the emphasis in the music. And I, I would say pointing to That's right. the, the illusion of making something louder by making it longer, emphasis, mm-hmm. okay? Um, but it's, it's rhythmic music. And uh, so all too often when I'm judging, I hear performances where people are running roughshod over the beat, you know? Yes. Just not focusing their music on the beat. So part of that is, you know, going back to the singing thing with the metronome Mm -hmm. to make sure there's alignment between the melody and the rhythm. Um, As uh, pipers, we have to be able to set this internal metronome. It takes a while to do that for a lot of people. But yes and no. I mean, you could ask anyone, sing me Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And they'll sing it to you with perfect rhythm. Yeah, sometimes what what happens, uh, I think Andrew is the in the um, struggle to play execution. It distorts people's right. sense of time. But again, it's just going back to uh, playing it like you would sing it. Like I'm, anybody on the street could sing you "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star" in perfect rhythm because they're not thinking about it because it's obvious. It's just something you've always sung. Right, and, but then bagpipe music. There's there's all that complicated stuff happening, and all the technical aspects, and then uh, the the idea that it should just be played simply and rhythmically kind of gets lost. So the uh, focus on the beat requires, in my mind, a fair amount of work with the, the metronome. Not to be you know a slave to a metronome, but you have to make sure. Well. You know, are you playing on the beat? Do you know? Or right. do you just assume that you are? That's right. So that's what the metronome doesn't lie. These Today's metronomes do not lie. I think, you know, I think there are alternatives. For example, like if you are, uh, if you are playing along with uh, an instructor who's a master of rhythm, if you're playing along with him, like that... That will work. I think that's why all like the the good, like there's so many good Scottish bagpipers who are also teachers who look at what we do with the metronome and they're like, that is, you're just teaching people to be robots, Andrew. And it's like, well, okay, it's a little easy for you to say because you've spent your whole life developing, just playing along with masters. But not everybody has that. And even if you do have that, the metronome can still be useful. Yeah, so I but it's co- weird. commonly look, use the example of the dartboard. What? Well, we start off typically in one of the outer rings of the dartboard with our our skill set. Yes. And over time, over time, over time, we reach the bullseye. And what's our goal? To hit the center of the bullseye. So it takes a while for some people to develop that very keen sense of rhythm 
and it comes with awareness by hearing things in a different way that comes over time. And that's and you also learn by, you know, something like a bullseye. I mean, you learn, oh, if if your grouping is always to the left. Right. Uh, you, there are simple adjustments you can make to just shift that grouping to where you want. And that's the biggest thing, you know, uh, that's the biggest thing. I think it's like you have to have an awareness of whether or not you're on the bullseye so that you can then learn the art of a, always making adjustments, right? There's probably great dart players out there who have days where for whatever reason, like they're, they're just, they're missing to the left ever so slightly and probably need to make adjustments of some kind. Otherwise, you're never going to win the darts. So, you know, commonly, I, uh, let's see, in, over the years of judging, people play ahead of the beat. Yes. Or they don't start a multi-pulse movement on the beat. Okay. Uh, so things like, uh, like you hear Amazing Grace, these slurs, it's the strike part that people want to yeah. put on the beat. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's right. So um, that's your point about, you know, it, that awareness of what you're doing. If there's a consistent kind of uh, fault, you make the adjustments. Yep. It's the, different, right? Like I remember listening to Cam Webster when he was young. You know Cam? Yes. And right now, he's just such a great player. Uh, I remember listening to him when he was young and he was like missing technique all over the place. But what he, what Cam has always done so well is been able to like he he's understood like oh i'm just trying to play the song that's in my head that i know really well i'm just playing it on the pipes no big deal and he'll then i'll do it on the fiddle and then whatever uh, but and then so it's one thing for a player like that to play a d-strike movement with the strike on the beat uh because like because it's the music's coming from like the right place and obviously over time like those little imperfections go away. It's like when it's like when my daughter says, "What does she say?" She said, "I mean, certain English phrases that are obvious to us. Like she doesn't quite have it right because she's three, but but you know, like what she's trying to say, and it's the, like the right process. And then versus you know, uh, versus a piper that um, isn't getting the singing and music part of it." The, uh, you watching the clock? I was just looking at the clock. Yeah, I gotta. I have to be wheels up by eleven if I'm gonna make it to the gym on time. Okay, but right, that right, I mean right. that should be fine. It should be fine. So also on the subject of embellishments, um, I teach students to play multi-pulse embellishments with the pulses the same length all the same length so a doubling yes there's this balance between the two pulses of a doubling right so uh that is a common fault common fault Big time. Not, not playing th- with the kind of distinction that's needed and having this balance between pulses um for me the the idea of power piping of the right degree of openness or closeness of of these multi-pulse movements to suit the music. So sometimes uh, on the one extreme, you hear people playing uh, doublings, embellishments um, too openly and mechanically. Right. And they detract tremendously from the melody. They're taking too much 
time uh, focus away from the melody. That's one extreme. The other extreme is um, when the pulses are so tight and faint, they're not lending weight. So um, it's the relative duration of those sounds that needs to be, you know, the same. Mm -hmm. And depending upon what kind of tune you're playing and the tempo, they accordionize. Yes. The relative timing remains the same, but we shrink or expand a little bit, enough to, the, to right. suit the tune. And obviously control over the elements of the embellishment is the key like factor there right. that has to be developed. So, I mean, you hear things like uh, grips, throw movements, where people have like an initial low G that's strong and then the second one is too short, and then it's an early release ahead of the beat. Yep. Um, very common. Um, so that is takes time to develop that. It takes time to get to be consistent. So all your I look at the the, the G family of doublings. So they're all G grace noted. They all have to be the same type of pulsing. Mm-hmm within a, a tune. So you hear sometimes people will play something like, I'll just say, for example, like double Bs are way more open than something like a double E. So that's about awareness, being able to to um, hear what you're doing. So the, the uh, availability now of recording devices to periodically take a step back, having made a recording, and listen uh, objectively, right? Non-judgmentally, listen objectively, and say, what does that sound like? That's How right. am I doing? How am yeah. I doing? Um, I, I, I two thoughts there. Number one is like, whenever I'm preparing for something with my piping, I'm recording every day. It's so easy. Like, I don't use this machine. <laughs> I don't use this octopus, but I have got like a, a zoom, a simple zoom where you just press the red button. And then when you're done, you, you press it again. And then you put it on your computer. And then, yeah, like, you know, then it's on my Dropbox then I can just listen to it anywhere I go. And like you said, like, that's just like, make it part of your, part of your it's ecosystem. The, it's the tool set. Yeah. We have a wonderful tool and having these recording devices. Do you use these tools? Well, and the other thing is permission to create junk. I was reading an article and, and that, <laughs> that was the, uh, one of the captions. It, w- it was an article about how creative genius is a fallacy. Right. And it's really about just doing you know, working on your craft a little bit every day. And then eventually like creative genius, uh, surfaces, but like most of the time it's not genius, right? Just like when you're weightlifting, most of the time you're not hitting your new maximum weight. Right. And, uh, um, but permission to create junk is one of the headings. Like I, you turn the recorder on and maybe it's total shit. Guess what? Like you, you can throw that recording out later. It's not important. Or sometimes like sometimes total shit happens, but like, but, but there's some really great stuff leading up and there's things you can learn from and and like develops. So that's my example of the dartboard. You may start out with total shit, but if you keep working at something, you're listening, you're developing awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Otherwise you just, otherwise you have thrown that experience away. So too often people dabble at achievement that's right they do not work over time 
to focus on you know what needs to be fixed they dabble yeah. a little bit here a little bit there so it's the the long haul the the tortoise versus the I hare. just saw something on Instagram yesterday that that reminds me of uh, it was like a cool diagram I follow a bunch of learning nerds on uh, I remember who it was let me look it up so while Andrew's looking that up I'm gonna no I found it already okay that's how quick right. I am so the journey to creating anything great so it's kind of like a it it's kind of goes down before it goes up, you know? So it starts off with this is good. this is the best idea ever, you know, like I'm going <laughs> to like I'm going to win the gold medal, right? Yeah. Or or I'm going to go let's say let's make it more like realistic. Like I'm going to go uh play grade 4 solos this year. This is the best idea ever. And you start off really on the on a high. And then immediately it, you're not quite as high anymore like as you start the process and then it, it, it changes from this is the best idea ever to this is going to be fun then it's like wait a minute this is harder than i thought then it's like oh shit this is going to be a lot of work and then there's this sucks i have no idea what i'm doing and you want to try and like stay above that line it looks like based on this and then and then you start to build your way out of it but this t- all takes time right gordy like this is, this is over like several weeks probably. And you get to like, Oh crap, this is going to be a lot of work. And then, and then after a while it's like, okay, but this, I still stink, but it's okay. Then it's like, okay, I'm going to call it a day today and, uh, see what we learned maybe with a little recording, you know? And then you're like, Hmm, maybe that wasn't so bad today. And then it's like, Hey, wait a minute. Like, wow, that wasn't so bad. And then, you know, uh, like, wow, this wasn't so bad is probably, your second or third competition out there. And you're like, wow, that actually wasn't that bad. And then pretty soon you've had, you have achieved something and there's like, but that's, but you have to go. And by dabbling, I think, I think you never, you're never willing to go over that cliff where it's going to suck for a while. So the, the little engine that could, right. It just, you, you keep applying yourself over time. Now from one day to the next, well, this might be a bad day. That's right. Most right? of them don't are. expect yeah. there to be a continuous uh, uphill level right. of achievement. It's like a saw blade, up and down, up and down. But overall, the direction, the trajectory. Right. And the, the important thing is not to dabble. Like you don't want to dip your toe in and then take it out. Right. And then dip it in. That, that's like weight loss for me. That's what it's like. I, di- I dip my toe in a healthy diet. And that, but then I take my toe out on all those days where I'm eating ice cream again or pizza or whatever. It's like what you need to do is dip your toe in. You're not going to be perfect every day, but set out every day to try to eat healthy. And then um, six months later, you're going to get that wow. Like, wow, wait a minute. I've actually had success with that. Um, and that's, you know, but I'm still on the seesaw. I'm still dabbling with achievement. So the uh, going back to the idea of recordings, right? Sorry, Re- sorry, Gordy. Not- yeah, get me back on track. Okay, so recordings. Um, the the use of a metronome. Again, one of the things that I've felt all too common is that people run roughshod over rhythm. To, that over time you will hear yourself getting better and better and better as your your focus on the beat, your ability to focus execution on the beat gets better, better, better. And that's the uh, the reinforcement that you get by having regular um, practice time on, say, that aspect, as well as, you know, execution is such an important part of our, our art form that uh, 
people who try to fix things, fix execution while they're playing a tune, they don't get it. You have to pull that out and work on things separately. Figure out what needs to be fixed. And it's really like uh, this uh, disassembly. Go out, you know, pull something out of a piece of, out of a tune. Maybe work on that. I, I'm a big fan of what I call sticky bits. Right. You know, like self-made exercises. Sure. To focus attention apart from playing the tune and work on that over time. Work on that over time. Don't dabble. Right. So, Absolutely. But slow practice allows you, or you know, working on things more slowly or openly, um, to to initially to the point where you can think through what needs to happen with your fingers to correct something. That's people, right. People try to fix stuff at speed, and ain't gonna happen. It will eventually, but uh, but that takes a long time. It's right. like, uh, yeah, it's like learning to ride your bike, I guess, or something. You know, at first you're very wobbly and you have to think about what you have to do to unwobble. But then over time, you're not even thinking about it as you're like basically perfectly balancing all the way down through the process. Classical musicians spend an incredible amount of time working on dexterity, technique. Yeah. Okay. All these arpeggio exercises and so on. Tremendous amount of time. We tend to want to just you know, fire up the bagpipes and let her rip, play tunes. So you want to get better, you got to focus on the details of the music. Mm-hmm. Focus time over time, that reinforcement along with what you're talking about, the Instagram uh, graphic. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things to me, one of the big like detractors, the thing, and maybe you can tell me if you agree with this, but like one of the things people don't get that causes so much harm is that embellishments are very, very difficult to do well. They're they're complicated finger movements that have to happen very fast. And so, and then combine that with this weird idea that people have, which is you're not a real piper unless you're playing all the embellishments. Like to me, that's a really toxic idea because, you know, most people, like you're saying, I mean, we're still talking about how to play quarter notes correctly with the metronome, but then also trying to play D throws and grips and terlouis and weird combinations while you're trying to do all the other stuff. It doesn't make any sense. Like you have to, the biggest thing 80% of people could do today would be to start all of their development sessions without embellishments and get the baseline good and then gradually uh, add the embellishments back in you know, and going back and forth right. between that and understanding the relationship and doing a lot of development without the distraction of embellishments, like is so important. And but people won't do it because it's damaging to the ego somehow. So when I uh, am uh, leading a student from as a you know rank beginner, I have graduated series of pieces of music. Um, I have decontented shoals of herring, like the first part, as far as the melody line working on embellishments, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of your point. It's like want to have somebody be able to play embellishments cleanly, but then there's the focus work on getting the melody right. That's right. Getting the melody right. That is the most important thing. The and du- if you're The good. doublings, the, the embellishments sit on top of it. it. It gives weight. But if you don't have the melody right, 
it's it, you know weight about what you know so right exactly it's like what are you embellishing right it's like you're embellishing like a, a big pile of mud it's not what you want and and like here's what people don't understand it's the same thing when i tell people you should do the four questions of bagpipe maintenance every time you get your pipes out of the case right and people think i'm crazy but wait a minute if your maintenance is good because it was good yesterday, that process is gonna take you literally 26 seconds. And then you're good. And then you know your plane's not gonna crash and burn. But it's the same with the tunes. It's like play the tune with no embellishments first. And if you're good, that process is gonna take you five minutes and then you know you're good and then you're on to developing the embellishments. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, if it's not good, it's gotta get good or your embellishments are just gonna augment Right. Crappy playing. So there's one point that I want to interject here about playing bagpipes. When I was a kid, it was the sound of the bagpipe that just drew me in. You know, it was like, take me to your leader. Agreed. And um, still to this day, I get excited. When a bagpipe is well set up, well tuned, I am in nirvana. I just, and it's not just like, I don't have this sense that there's only one sound that satisfies me. Kids these days just think Nirvana is a band <laughs> that, that their parents listen to. So, um, in the words of Duke Ellington, if it sounds good, it is good. And that has to do with the sound of the bagpipe, the melody. And I'd say, yeah, embellishments can be secondary. You know, a, a tune can be, well, I, I think actually... I, I compare what Pipers and Brittany are playing, their scores versus uh, Scottish-Irish uh, traditional Great Highland bagpipe music. Our stuff is over-embellished, in my opinion. Okay? Yeah. So you can simplify things from a doubling to a grace note, still have emphasis, and make it easier, and it can sound good if the melody sounds good and the bagpipe can be as well set up That's so right. i think you know going back to what i was saying about the uh the technological advancements and bagpipes um i don't think that there is any reason why a uh, person who's newer to the bagpipe scene can't have a traditional a, a t- tremendous uh sounding bagpipe a really really good sounding bagpipe so that when they play in public if the bagpipe is sounding good and the melody is true you know that the note values and so on are true and it's being played rhythmically and the tune may be less embellished but it's really good so yeah simpler tunes played well is andrew right that plays that version of collins cattle with almost nothing in it you know that end. Dee, 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 dun, dun. That's the end of the part, and he just—he doesn't even play grace notes. It's so. When you first hear it, you're like, "What?" And then you're like, "Wait a minute!" It's like, he's totally getting it. You know, I think he has a grip at the beginning, but you know, uh, by the end, it's like he just goes down the scale. Dee, 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 with nothing in it, and his bagpipe sounds amazing. And it's like, so I totally get it. It's like a statement that, for me, really works. It's like you don't need any of that crap. Yeah, it's one so of the I, best pipers I look, I look ever. at uh, the original Scott's Guard collection, 
a lot of this stuff, in my opinion, is over embellished. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a bit, there's a bit of like, there's a little bit of like military-ish culturalism happening there. Like, you know, this is the way I picture it. It might not be factual, but you get a bunch of guys together playing the same tunes. And I think what naturally starts to happen is like, you know, you're one-upping each other and you're figuring out how clever you can be because it's fun and you're doing it together. And I think a lot of the settings we play maybe come out of that a little bit. Well, same with the solo competition uh, I see camaraderie too. Uh, um, all too often, um, I hate to use this um, distinction, but I typically I see the younger set dexterity is there versus people who are learning the bagpipe as you know older beginners don't have the same level of dexterity. Mm-hmm. So it's watch me. I play fast and hear all this. You know all the yeah. doodads. You know that that there's a tendency to focus on the fireworks of dexterity. Okay. Yeah. So the uh, I want to talk just a f- uh, for a few minutes about bagpipe playing. So you know the setup of the bagpipe, it's it's not an art; it's a learned skill set. Yeah. How to do that? Yeah. Now, part of that skill set is hearing, you know, the difference in sounds, the timbre differences in tonal quality, you know, they get from this and that. But it, it go back to the dartboard thing, you know, you got to work at it, develop the skill set. So, you know, you can set up a really, really good sounding bagpipe. And then what? Well, can you play it? You got to have that steadiness of pressure to maintain pitch and not have drones go right yeah so for me the secret is in the elbow your elbow is that pressure regulator and uh i forget who i would attribute this to but it was the put a magazine between your elbow and the bag and don't let it slip out i attribute that to what donald Lindsay said about gail brown is that that was her thing, but uh, who knows who, it, who whose uh, you know original idea it was? But that's a great point, and the point there is, you actually never stop squeezing with your arm. Right. When I blow, I'm blowing against my arm a little bit. My arm is on the back. Yeah. And um, so you know this idea of tonal quality timbre. Um, it's very common for us in this world of I want it to be easy I play the bagpipe uh, pressure the bagpipe enough to get sound so it's not choking you know those lapses of sound but what does it sound like so you tend to get this um, let's see poor tonal quality when you're just basic barely uh, sounding the bagpipe and I remember some years back, somebody did a spectral analysis of uh, different pressure points. Yeah. And that it was, the harmonics were much richer, um, sweeter when people play into the bagpipe at the proper pressure. So that's a, a, one of those learned skills. Don't just, you know, sound the bagpipe, find the sweet spot, the that's pressure right. spot. And, that's, and every you know, bagpipe is different. 
It's not the minimum. It's not blow the minimum amount of air so your bagpipe doesn't cut out. It's blow the maximum amount of air to maximize the response without anything bad happening. That's what we teach, you know. So, so you really, you know, you really want to go on the upper end. And then people say, "Well, I can't blow on the upper end because it makes me like because it's too hard." Well, it's like then then you need to address like an easier setup that allows you to reach that point. So somebody starting out, um, it's a learned skill to be able to control that airstream with your diaphragm and intercostal muscles, right? Yes. So you find people typically, they want easy and they will, uh, they they breathe with their upper chest, right? Yeah. Instead of controlling the pressure stream by pushing the ear out. So, but a lot of that has to do with letting go of the elbow all the time too. So as soon as you let go of the elbow, pressure drops. Now you need to gasp for air and try and get it in fast because you just lost a whole bunch of pressure. So, so it's all related. It's all related. I think, you know, maintaining a higher pressure in the bag um, typically will, uh, let's see, produce a steadier sound or is, is one of those things that helps to promote a steadier sound is having a higher pressure in the bagpipe. The, um, uh, that, so the elbow is critical. The diaphragm is critical. It's something that, that you learn over time. People will get stronger, you know, stamina, strength by doing what? Pushing yourself by playing more. Don't just stop when it, when it begins to yeah. hurt or not hurt, but you know, Discomfort level, you got to push yourself. So it's like uh, going to the gym. There you go. Yeah, it's it's something that develops over time, but play into the read, get the best sound. Don't just you know get sound, get the best sound. Can't agree more with that. So, uh, the art of teaching has come a long, long way. Uh, all these various things we were talking about, they're really food for thought for you know people to consider and their uh, approaches to their own playing. There's some element about play it like this. You know, we talked about sing through your your fingers, right? Make yeah. the, the music come through your fingers, which was the way that I was taught initially. But I think there are all these added um, tidbits that make the road uh, a lot easier to uh, right. negotiate. I think I think as you attain this experience, you integrate good theory with uh, with what you're doing. So there it is. That's it. That's all I got to say. And that's all there is, really. You, yeah. We've covered everything. Everything for sure. Um, Cool. Well, thanks for doing this. You're most welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, unload. When I first asked you to do it, I was like, come on over to my office and we'll do it. And then it's like, why do I have uh, amazing, extremely portable gear if I'm not going to go to people? So I I just drove out. Makes a lot more sense. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to see this incredible portable uh, advanced technological setup. So it's got two more inputs if we wanted them right here just like these two and then this these add-ons are two more channels wow it's crazy right yeah yeah and it's going to sound pretty you're you're going to be 
impressed at how it sounds too by the time I think I hope but anyway I'm going to press the stop button okay that's it thanks Gordy all right